I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Miller. Welcome, everyone, to our 2020 season of Talking Volumes. We are not at the Fitzgerald Theater. Our writer guests have not had to hop on a plane to our fair city, but we are still having imaginative and wide-ranging conversations, and we're joined by Sarah Broom. Her book, The Yellow House, was a National Book Award winner and a bestseller. It's a wonderful memoir about the house that sheltered a family until it no longer could, and the lives those family members led once they left the Yellow House. Sarah Broom asks the most poignant of questions about her childhood home. What does it mean to both cherish and be ashamed of the place that held the heart of a family within its walls? So Sarah Broom joins us from her home in Harlem. Are you still in Harlem, Sarah? Yes. And this is where you have been enduring the pandemic and some amount of solitude, I would guess. Exactly. And and it's been so intriguing to be in Harlem watching it all evolve. You know, it occurred to me as I was thinking about the arc of our conversation that we should begin with the idea of what home means and the different mm. the different connotations that that that's taken on during the pandemic. Um, how have you been thinking about it and has your has your perception of what home is changed even since you finished the book and you've retreated into your home during the, you know, this enforced isolation? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the question for our time, I feel, what home means. And, you know, what's interesting, and I, I, I wonder if this happens for other writers, is that I think my obsession with the idea of home is what led me to want to write the book. But all writing the book did was uncover so many other complications and nuances and questions so that by the end of the book, I really was very confused about what home actually meant. And so it has been interesting to explore the idea, not only of literal space, Mm -hmm. but interior space. And I think for me during the pandemic, it has mostly been about interior space, the rooms of the self, how to sort of not only think about my definitions of home, but look around to the people who matter to me and find out what their definitions of home are. Because I think more these days, I'm leaning toward a kind of evolving and almost a spasmatic idea of home and place and what it can mean for all of us, you know, in these times. And the things that make me feel home are sometimes the way someone says something 
a phrase, right? And it will create in me a feeling almost of homesickness. And I will say, but homesickness for where? You know, and and sometimes the home is many places or a place I've been to only briefly. So that's where I am now. How do you think we recognize the idea, the concept of home versus somewhere we return to every evening, somewhere we retreated into during the pandemic? It's interesting because I guess, so now we're talking about a physical place that we inhabit, right? That Mm -hmm. has typically has all of our things or things we recognize. And these things are, are somehow composing a spot or some sense of comfort for us, right? And I think now if we look around, everyone is quite obsessed, not everyone, but a lot of people are quite obsessed with making this room look better (laughs) and finding the ways that, okay, this wall I never looked at, how can I make it Instagrammable or somehow representational, right? And I guess for me, I wonder about A, do rooms have personality? B, how, you know, when someone says a room is warm, what does that actually mean to them that a room is warm? And how do you make for yourself and for other people a feeling within a room? And, and I think for us now living in these times, which are violent and confusing and so utterly strange, that maybe what home is becoming for us is, you know, of course, the one thing we can possibly control mm-hmm. and, and the one spot where we can perhaps try to make some semblance of peace be possible, you know? You know, when I when I listen to you kind of wrestle with that, I think at the beginning of this, I think we thought of our homes as, as you've said, safe, controlled spaces, and they felt like a refuge. Bit by bit, month by month, they began to evolve into, I think for many people, difficult, isolated places, especially in a place like New York City. Mm-hmm. where you are you are isolating in the company in the close company of many many other people but you're sure. getting none of the benefits really of what it means to be in that kind of dense community sounds like you've you've given some thought to this i have because you're right i think all of us who are human beings are in the phase of it all where, you know, nothing is bringing us comfort from inside the house we've looked at for how long every single day. (laughs) And I think part of what's also happening is that it's making us in a way, forcing us to see also what's wrong with the places where we live, because we are so interior, right? Quite literally. um, And also psychologically Um, it's been, so strange to be in Harlem, which is a place where people gain so much joy 
from their interactions with each other. It's one of the things I love most about living in Harlem. It's a sort of, for me, the feeling is like being in the South, right? In New York, because people care about you and are paying attention and are being, you know, too nosy most of the time. <laughs> and, it, and it's strange now to go outside and really feel such distance in order to self-protect. It, mm-hmm. it sort of rubs against fundamentally what it, it means to be part of this community and to, to sense the fear you have about another person you know. Right. 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 Um, There's so much uncertainty. And so I think now maybe perhaps the question has evolved to how do we find home in other people in the middle of this feeling that everything is unsafe? Yeah. you, You reminded me about a conversation I had with my mother who lives somewhere else. And I was visiting her just a couple weeks ago, and I kept saying, stay six feet apart. And we finally had this, I can't get used to the idea that my own daughter could be a threat to my health. This is such radical thinking in some ways, isn't it? It sure is. It sure, And I've, I've experienced that with my family. I actually, um, my partner and I took a road trip to Los Angeles, actually. We drove cross-country. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, part of us were, we were just elated to not be in the house we had been in <laughs> uh, since, since March. But one of the more shocking things was arriving in California and going to see my brother and my sister who live in Northern California where just before the fire started raging there. And sitting in the backyard with them, and they were sort of making fun of how careful I was being, that I was sitting (laughs) away from them. And I had my mask, and my brother called me sort of like a weirdo. He said, look at her being a weirdo. And, and, you know, it sort of hurt my feelings. But I was saying, but isn't this what we do now? You know, you're you're protecting me, and I'm protecting you, right? But there was was that conflict you're talking about, which is, if you love and trust me, you know, I'm not harm. I can't be harmful. Right. But but that's not so, in fact. And I, I think ref- that's hard to reframe that because we love each other, we I'm protecting you. Right. Even you know? though I have to be so far away from you, hugs Even are though, out of the question. Right. It's so Doesn't hard that feel weird? Oh, it feels so, you know, I, that's the one reason I've hesitated to get down to New Orleans and see my mother at a distance, because I can't imagine being in the presence of my mother and not touching her. It's, it's, it's unfathomable for me. So have you not seen your mother since March? I have not seen my mother. I have not. And it's the hardest thing, really. And, you know, interestingly, there have been many storms over the in the middle of COVID. There have been literal storms. And my mother was evacuated because of oh Sally. Gosh. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it was very, we've had a lot of triggering moments. Uh, Lake Charles, you know, was one. And 
the storm that hit Lake Charles yes. recently. And, uh, and then Sally was one where we all were feeling a little bit re-traumatized um, because, you know, we're at a distance. We physically can't even get close. And we had to wrestle with how does one evacuate to where in the middle of COVID? So this is a strange new world in that way. This has been a, this must have been a very difficult summer and now early fall for your mother because of what's happening with these hurricanes. And even if, you know, even if they land with diminished winds, the threat of flooding, which your mother has been through, what, how many times has your mother been through? I mean, I'm sure you never really get accustomed to the idea that uh, this could be the one, that you don't survive. I think that's right. I don't think you ever get used to it. And and I've been thinking about this a little bit. I think for, for most New Orleanians who have hurricane season every summer and, 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 and sort of commence to live in a suspended space, right? Where you never know how something's going to turn, where it's going to land, how it's going to hit. You're constantly in the line of fire. This is a kind of parallel track to how many of us live or have perpetually lived in America. So it's trauma upon trauma, right? right? Right. And I think so much of the the essence of New Orleans, our ritual and how we celebrate and the things that make the city what it is, I think it has to do somehow with that hurricane season, with the not knowing, this sort of real appreciation for grasping at beauty when you can, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it's the sort of environment, I think, that could allow for the creation of something like jazz even, right? I mean, I think, you know, so much of what it means to be a New Orleanian has to do with sort of succeeding again and again and again, surviving again and again and again, right? Um, and, and, And I keep being reminded of that because I think my mother does that. I keep thinking on a specific level, my mother needing to be aware, be suspended, survive again and again and again. Do you think your mother sees herself as indomitable? Because that is kind of what you're describing. But I'm curious about how she would, she sees herself. I think she feels quite vulnerable, in fact. Um, And, you know, my mother is nearly 80 now. And I, you know, I think around 80, maybe you get to the point where you, there aren't very many people left who share your history. Right. And I think my mother, my mother has always been very introspective very interested in feelings, 
You know, we we were the kind of house where, you know, you look somebody in the eye. I mean, the, the joke that I have now with my partner, because she can't stand this way of mine. But if she says, I need a glass of water, I'll say, are you feeling thirsty? Because <laughs> Because it's like my mother's way is that if you say, you know, could you lower the music? She'll say, is it hurting your ears? <laughs> right? It's uh-huh. sort of it's sort of like everything leads to some check-in <laughs> about how you're right. feeling in this moment, which <laughs> it can be really, you know, annoying to a lot of and people. And wonderful, by the way, and wonderful. And wonderful. For me, it's wonderful, but I see how it could be. <clears throat> but, 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 so I think my mother has, like, in the tradition of many Black women, a kind of reserve, right, of space within her. And I think, but I think she's also extremely exhausted. I mean, she raised 12 human beings. And my sister and I joke that, you know, we really annoy her now because she doesn't really want to talk to us that much. (laughs) You know, she we're mostly annoying to her at this stage of the game. Uh huh. You know, when you were describing um, <laughs> the complexity of the love that you and your family feel for New Orleans and that you felt for this house, it it does remind me about what it is to be an American, to be a citizen today, to be an American with all of the flaws and all of the, as you said, the trauma that we endure and the willingness to see, you know, to see the places where we're not fulfilled, to see the things that it doesn't, it doesn't give us, to see the our fellow citizens that do not share, right, in the fruitfulness of the country that we love. I think of that experience that you had in New Orleans and with this house as kind of a microcosm of that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Perfectly so. And, you know, what I was attempting to do in the book itself was to, of course, keep circling this small dot where this house was. But by virtue of doing that, to keep reflecting and almost trapping the light from all these different spaces that essentially make that one spot. And that's really about what it means to be American. The, the, the idea of that resonated and rang in my head. And, you know, I think what happens in earlier drafts of any work, I'm learning this all over again now, is that the work is just stilted for me with the the big ideas that I'm trying to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think in the early drafts of The Yellow House, it was so obvious and on the surface that this was a book about what it means to be American. The creation of this one particular American family. And when I was talking about myth, and how myth-making happens and Mm -hmm. how it benefits and hurts us and what happens when you believe a lie, for instance, Mm -hmm. that that was an American story and continues to be 
an American story. Um, and, and I think that there is something so fundamental about that, right? Um, so that, because I do believe that in any country, uh, the tendency to disconnect from certain parts of oneself is strong. But if we are all forced to say there is no disconnection from that part mm-hmm. or that person who embarrasses or shames us, that we made that person for better or worse, that person is part of us, right? Why is it like that? How do we become better? That that's the movement. And so, yes, yeah, so it was all connected for me that if we're going to talk about a yellow house, if we're going to talk about storms, if we're going to talk about environmental catastrophe, if we're going to talk about what makes a city great or not great for all of its citizens, that's the American narrative. You know, I think about, um, I've had a number of conversations about how powerful and troublesome this myth of American exceptionalism is. How meaningful that is in building some kind of common American narrative and how a country needs that, right? Mm-hmm. We do need that for some kind of collective tie, mm-hmm. the collective mm-hmm. belief, but also how diminishing that can be, how isolating that can be, and how easy, I think we've seen, it is to turn that around and expose the dark side of that. In some ways, I think that's what our political debate is about, right? I know we think we're sure. debating policy, but but in some ways, we are every four years debating what it means to be an American. And that discussion feels like it's gotten really uncomfortable to me. How does it feel to you? I think it has gotten more uncomfortable maybe than it's ever been. And just to tie it into exceptionalism too, I think that the, the challenge with exceptionalism is that often it's not evidence-based, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, mm-hmm. I'm special because I think I'm special. I mean, I, I think I wrote that in a notebook when I was five or something. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm special because I am, right? <laughs> uh, but there's no evidence of that being special at that point, right? So it's sort of like we can get away with so many things, right? By professing a kind of specialness and uniqueness. But I think now, how do we have a conversation where we are able to reckon with who we are and our history when we are still struggling to be honest and truthful about that history. Right. And and I think that is the fundamental question. I mean, one of the things that was striking to me um, when I got to know a little bit about Cambodia, let's say, um, is that very, very quickly after, I remember going on a tour and learning that very, very soon after the Khmer Rouge had left, right? After mm-hmm. this total decimation that that they almost instantly turned the sites of the trauma into sites of remembrance mm. so that people could 
begin to reckon with what had happened, that they could be amongst the evidence of what had happened, right? And I, and I still feel that our American tendency is pretty much about amnesia and right. avoidance. And so now you're going to take that country, which has historically, that's like taking a person who hasn't been in therapy ever and saying, now go deep. <laughs> Tell me, you know, what's your problem? And be new tomorrow, <laughs> right? It's going to take time. But I think the first step is to be able to look around. And, and I think this reckoning is actually happening, I feel, in a way it hasn't before, where people are, are looking around and saying, if we don't diagnose the problem, we're going to fall back into this old pattern. And right now, the person for me who is speaking to me the most about this mm-hmm. is uh, Eddie Gloud, mm-hmm. who wrote Princeton. a book called, yes, Begin Again. And he talks about all these things Baldwin has historically said to us about our American tendency, tendencies. But one thing he talks about most specifically is the lie Americans tell themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And it always starts to creep up at the moment when change is most possible. We fall back on the why it can't be done. And I think the challenge for all of us now is, you know, coming together and saying, how do we go someplace else this time? How do we not repeat the pattern? I'm having a conversation with writer Sarah Broom about her memoir, The Yellow House. It's part of our Talking Volumes season. Um, Would you read the first excerpt and tell us a little bit about where we are in the story of the house and some of the decisions that the family is making? So this section that I'm going to read from Interiors comes in the second movement, actually, of the book. And so by this point, I've sort of set up the world of the house. And I've appeared on the planet about 100 pages in. (laughs) And I'm describing this house as I remembered it. And specifically moving into the part of our lives where the house is such a major source of shame and embarrassment. And I'm beginning to explore that as a young person. Interiors. Shame is a slow creeping. The most powerful things are quietest, if you think about it, like water. I cannot pinpoint the precise moment when I came to understand that no one outside our family was ever to come inside the yellow house. During the Livingston days, my mother started saying, You know this house not all that comfortable for other people. And that line seemed after a time unending, a verbal tick so at home with us that she need not ever complete the sentence. You know this house? Because Lynette was five years older than I and far more outgoing and because she had a social life beyond the short end of the street, this mattered much more to her at first. One time in her middle school days, Lynette dared ask anyway. She wanted Christy Lee to come over. All of her friends had been hosting slumber parties, and now it was Lynette's turn 
You know this house not. I knew it would happen if you made friends, Lynette says, 35 years after the fact. So I stopped making them. It meant that people were going to want to come into your life and they weren't going to come nowhere near that house. Not even if it took everything in me. Christy Lee never came over. In this way, we stayed closed, clutched inside. Without knowing how it came to be, we left every person in our world who was not family outside, unable to cross the threshold to enter in and see the place where we lived, which was still my mother's pride and joy. The house was my beginnings. It was the only house I ever knew. We love interiors. My mother was raised by my grandmother Lolo to make a beautiful home. I loved to make beauty out of ordinary spaces. I had not known this back when I was living inside the yellow house, but I knew it in my adult years when I created rooms that people gravitated to, the kind generally described as warm. Once, a friend came to one of these made places, an apartment in Harlem, and sat in the parlor looking around. The room had made him feel alive, even happy to be alive, he said. And then, you have things to make a home with. People are always telling me this. I was the same person when I lived in the yellow house. I had those qualities that drew me to want to be in a beautiful place surrounded by people I loved. And what this is building to, what I am trying to describe, is the gut-wrenching fact the discovery even, that by not inviting people in, we were going against our natures. That is shame, a warring within, a revolt against oneself. It can bury you standing if you let it. Those convoluted feelings manifesting as an adrenaline rush when I narrowly avoided letting someone see the place where I lived. By the time I was 14, the possibility of anyone non-family seeing our house was imbued with fantastical power, the anxiety sending my heart to racing even now, thumping these words out across the page. You're listening to my Talking Volumes conversation with writer Sarah Broom about her memoir, The Yellow House. It's a National Book Award winner, now out in paperback. We, we spoke a little bit about... Um, the vulnerability and indomitability of your mother. Was she at your National Book Award um, reception and speech? She was there. She was there. That that was a moment for me that I remember being in the room and my mother sitting to the right of me. And I I get chills just thinking about it. And what it represented, it was the one moment where I felt, I, I felt, first of all, like a child in a way, because I had such a sensory experience of myself sitting there, like, oh, the distance has been far, the chasm between a falling down yellow house on the short end of Wilson Avenue. And this gala with my mother sitting to my right. It felt like the widest thing imaginable. <laughs> 
it 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 was so stunning to me um surreal really i think you said during your speech that your mother was a woman who wolfed down words and that she had this approach to life that that was kind of a make me know did she say that yes what did that mean when she said that it for me and and my favorite the favorite people in my life are all autodidacts all of them my favorite humans and my mother is one she wanted to know everything. She was curious about everything. If you would say something to her, well, you know, in Paris, they do this. My mother would say, make me know, make me know, tell, tell me more. How do they do it? You know, it's this, I love it. I, I feel like if I have a theme for my own life, it's make me know. And, and my mother, it is hard to express the way in which she made me a writer. And, and I know, I feel this pretty confidently that I, I, if my mother had, were born into different circumstances that I, she would be a poet, the way she, she has a relationship with words, even to this day, she's really interested in them. You know, she reads complicated things and has incredible things to say about it. Um, you, she's you, she's voluminous in that way. You said it was hard to express the ways that she made you a a writer, but but give it a go, will you? I would say the first thing is a absolute to 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 inherit her joy at seeing something that is a fine and granular detail. You know, when you when you're on the phone with my mother, we're on the phone a lot in my family and you're telling her a story. She will absolutely stop you (laughs) if there's no sensuality in that story. Uh If you're just like, oh, yeah, I went down to the. Oh, no, 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 no. How did you go down? Were you moving quickly? Were you going slow? (laughs) You know, I went to check the mail. Well, was the mailbox yellow? Was it red? Like is the flag and the box the same color? (laughs) You know, my mother is a sensual human and and she really and my siblings are this way. You know, a few of us are bad storytellers. You know, we just miss the the sort of detail of a thing and 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 we will call each other out for it. Wow, yeah. Let me go call someone else so we can get <laughs> a real story. So she really taught me how to look out for my mother made me extremely comfortable with asking questions. She taught me that curiosity is a sign of connection and of love. And, and so if you walk in and you're, you already know you're not the most important person in a room, that that person over there has something to tell you and teach you, right. that, that you actually become. And I think that's key for writing, this idea that, that you are paying a lot of attention right to the human beings around you and the sensory experience of the world. And then of course, just my mother is a, is a, a really big reader. It's her thing. 
just a little bit about the background of the Yellow House. You got an assignment to write about Hurricane Katrina and what your family had been through for a magazine. Um, And the Yellow House had given, is it right to say that it had basically succumbed to Hurricane Katrina? It had, yes. So it was destroyed by the storm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you get this assignment for the magazine to go write about what this means to your family. And you say, I knew it was ridiculous. My writing down what everyone said after every conversation, I hid myself away in the bathroom, writing scenes into a notebook instead of feeling. Tell me when the disassociation of that began to began to wear off. Maybe when I wrote that line <laughs> in some way. Really? I maybe I still disassociate. I it is so painful to have your family as the subject of something you're trying to make sense of. And not just your family, their experiences. It's in order to actually make the book, I had to, I remember trying to write a scene about my grandmother. I really wanted to describe her and just not being able to do it for so long. And then just having to think of her like outside of me, Yeah. just collect, collect the evidence that I have, type it up, print that out, open a new notebook and describe the woman based on this evidence who is not my grandmother. She's just a woman, right? And do that for every character, right? Because now they're characters and you're not you, you're this, right? I think so much of writing requires this disassociation because especially if you're writing, I think if you're writing fiction or not, it's true. But for me, for the first, I remember the early years of writing this book, I kept saying, you know, the narrator, she who will not be named. And my friends would go, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) And I'd say, you know, this person has a very specific point of view, this narrator. And I needed to keep on with that, you know, so that I, I could make something that had a strong point of view, understanding that it was only one sliver of the person I understand to be me. Okay, this now makes sense because I was imagining you on this assignment in the middle of your family experiencing this trauma and you being able to listen to that and be a part of that and yet be able to retreat, you know, to take these notes about... Yeah. Now this makes sense how you, you yeah. trained yourself writing, to do it. I think the writing for me is, so at certain points, because this is not always true, in fact, but at certain times, especially when the thing is happening, because I catch myself doing it now, I'll be watching the news and I see I'm taking notes and I'll say, oh, oh, I'm writing in place of feeling. Ah. Because if I can just write, move my hand, 
and do something else with myself, Mm -hmm. then I can say, I'm a recorder of this thing. Mm -hmm. But then in the moments when the writing, the exploration happens, that's when I have the thing written down, I have the recording, and I now have to sit by myself in this room and listen to every word this person has told me all by myself. That's when I start to feel, you know, that's when I can begin to sort of disassociate less and say, this is my mother talking about a terrible time in her life, you know? I had a conversation with a novelist a couple days ago who said she had experienced the the loss to Alzheimer's of her father and it was it was deeply traumatic and she wrote a memoir about that but she knew she was going to come back to it eventually in fiction and she has years later but in the course of the conversation she said i shamefully used everything that i that i felt in my fiction. And I kind of caught, we talked a little bit about (laughs) using that word shamefully. And she, she thought again and said, but, but that is what writers do. We step back and then we step in and we can do nothing but use that. Do you think that's right? In ways, I think it's right. Um, I was thinking about this and talking with a friend of mine about this, that I see, I, I, I see my goal and my job as to be living life and paying a lot of attention while living life, right? Mm-hmm. And the art, the work is actually the byproduct of that living, right? It happens or doesn't, but it's not for me, the whole point. And there are ways in which the material from my life is instructive in a quieter way. And there, for instance, in this particular book, there were so many times I said, that detail I know is for life and is not for this book. You know, it Mm -hmm. doesn't belong to me. It's yeah. not mine. Um, you know, it belongs to this other person, right? And so I think I'm learning in certain ways what it means for me to draw from life. But there are the ways in which life is textural in the sense that it's making me a very particular kind of writer, right? Right. Um, because if I'm, I'm a person who loves traces, I just want to wipe this table with my hand and see what's on my hand. <laughs> uh-huh. like, what, what does this mean? Right. Um, that there are ways that I'm gathering up in the world, but that also I'm interested in the traces, you know, and what I can read from them. So it's tricky, I think, in that way, something to be constantly negotiating. Right, right. And and aware of, I mean, the fact that somewhere in your 
consciousness is a, this is feeding my life, maybe it will feed my writing, no, taking note of, that's not for, you, you've said that in a very particular way that I've never heard writers describe that. Maybe, mm. maybe most writers do that at a subconscious mm. level, and you've put words to that. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because when I, I was talking about this too with a friend. I'm constantly talking with friends, it seems. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but, but it's sort of like, it's, you know, I think about there's a moment in Toni Morrison's novel, uh, Paradise, where the women, you know, sort of find themselves in the basement and they're drawing on the floor their new names, essentially, right? Their new identifications. And, you know, that's a, a moment that one can make in fiction, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. You can, you can yes. just create this sort of symbolic, important moment that compels the thing. And I think what is so challenging in nonfiction, uh, which is the thing I write at the moment, is that you can find magic, yes, but you can't make up magic, (laughs) right? It, It has to actually exist in the lives of the people you're talking to through detail, right? The accumulation of detail, and the facts. And I, I, I guess there's a way in which my nonfiction life has created a kind of boundary mm-hmm. around how I think of using information from life. Now, if I were to just, you know, go wild and write the novel I'm dreaming of writing, you know, I probably wouldn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I think nonfiction and having a journalistic background, I still am testing the boundaries of that, right? Because it's how I've been focused and trained for so very long. Right. Um, I did note that at the moment, you said I'm, it's nonfiction that I'm writing at the moment. So there is a, there is a fiction writer waiting to emerge some point we shall see we shall see you know yeah we'll see would you read the last excerpt it's a short one from the yellow house and if you'll tell us a bit about where we are okay so this uh, piece from a, a section in movement three which is called water so it's when uh hurricane katrina hits New Orleans and uh, what happens to me and also to my family. And uh, this uh, whole section water was kind of, I was thinking a lot about, I was reading Dante's Inferno at the time that I wrote it, rereading Dante's Inferno. And so it sort of spirals into reflection and despair and all of those things. And this part uh, that I'm reading comes from the section called Erase, which is when we find out that the Yellow House has been demolished and none of us knew that it was going to happen. The only structure that was stable at the time of demolition was the incomplete add-on that my father had built 
The house contained all of my frustrations and many of my aspirations, the hopes that it would one day shine again like it did in the world before me. The house's disappearance from the landscape was not different from my father's absence. His was a sudden erasure for my mother and siblings, a prolonged and present absence for me, an intriguing story with an ever-expanding middle that never drew to a close. The house held my father inside of it, preserved. It bore his traces. As long as the house stood, containing these remnants, my father was not yet gone. And then suddenly, he was. I had no home. Mine had fallen all the way down. I understood then that the place I never wanted to claim had in fact been containing me. We own what belongs to us, whether we claim it or not. When the house fell down, it can be said, something in me opened up. Cracks help a house resolve internally its pressures and stresses, my engineer friend had said. Houses provide a frame that bears us up. Without that physical structure, we are the house that bears itself up. I was now the house. Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. you. I really enjoyed it. This was beautiful. I appreciate it. Me too.